We continue on with Master Holmgren. The next question. You say that such like Dharma nature is embodied in both sentient beings and Buddhas identically without duality. Therefore, if one group is deluded, both should be deluded. If one group is enlightened, enlightened both should be enlightened. Why are only Buddhas enlightened while sentient beings are deluded? So it first is referring to such like uh, Dharma nature. So such like Dharma nature is, um, we use the word thusness or suchness to refer to the to the Buddha uh, nature and saying that it is just this way. It's in, indescribable, inconceivable, but it is embodied in the sentient beings and the Buddha. So when we talk about it, we're saying that you have this Buddha nature. The difficult part about this is that we have to separate out the illusion of the body, which is perceived to be a sentient being, from, from the Buddha mind itself. We believe that we possess a separate sentience from each other. And as a result of that, we have this idea that we're individuals. This is very difficult for us to, to um, work with because it's, it, the answer is, is inconceivable. So this is a very tough question, very, very tough in terms of, of what is being said, because they're saying, well, how come Buddhas are enlightened and how come I'm not enlightened? Well, as a sentient being, you can never be enlightened because this body can't be enlightened. As a Buddha, there's nothing to enlighten you to. You already have the mind of a Buddha. But then it begs the question, then why can't I be like a Buddha right now? I want to be a Buddha right now. I don't want to be a sentient being. So that's the question. The answer is this, and, and it starts with this. At this point, we enter the inconceivable portion of this teaching. I kid you not, that's what it says. <laughs> it's like saying, at this point, you know, we're in the inconceivable, you know, and the people are going, what? And, and 
which cannot be understood by the ordinary mind. So that's why I was trying to get you to, to see the question, uh, at least as it's presented. One becomes enlightened by discerning the mind. One is deluded because of, excuse me, one is, becomes enlightened by discerning mind. One is deluded because of losing awareness of the true nature. So the first part is this enlightenment. It arises because the mind can discern. It, this does not mean discriminate. But it, this term discernment is very important. It shows up in, in quite a bit of sutras as well as uh, treatises. And discernment is to see clearly what is arising in the mind, to discern and to know what is Buddha, mind, and what is an illusion, to know the noumenon and the phenomenon, to know how phenomena arises, this is discernment. This discernment has another name. Do you know what it is? So far, you guys are like 0 for 20. <laughs> you want to take yes? Wisdom. Wisdom. Look, you got it. Go to the head of the class. Oh, you're already there. <laughs> wisdom. Discernment is wisdom. This is not the wisdom of sentient beings. It's the wisdom of the Buddha. And to, to see how things um, truly work, how mind works. And so then that is why it says um, that we become deluded when we lose, we lose the awareness of the true nature. So this awareness, it's not just simply Okay, it sees things. It is that it sees things with a discernment. So there's an active aspect of the mind. It's not just simply like it, a TV that's on or a camera that's on that, that is just recording things, but there's nothing happening. It is processing what is going on. It knows precisely why things are appearing, why things are disappearing, whatever's happening, it's clear about it. When we lose this true awareness of the mind, then we have no idea why things are appearing. Or we have no idea of how to stop some things from appearing and how to encourage other things to appear because we've lost that ability to, to see how mind works. If the conditions necessary for you to understand this occur, then they occur. So he's kind of saying, well, you see, if you can understand this, they occur because of causes and conditions. If you don't understand it, it's because the causes and conditions don't allow you to understand this at this point. And then you say, what? And then they say, that's the point. You don't understand it because the causes and conditions are there for you to understand it. Now, about now, you're probably thinking, I really want to understand it. I don't want to be on the other side saying, I don't understand it. If the conditions necessary, excuse me, it, it cannot 
definitely, it cannot be definitely explained. Simply rely on the ultimate truth and men maintain awareness of your own true mind. So the ultimate truth, anybody want to venture a guess as to what the ultimate truth is? Go ahead. Emptiness. Emptiness. Okay. Oneness. I'm sorry. Oneness. Oneness. Everything's created by the mind. Everything's created by the mind. He's he's been uh, kept in school for a long time, so of course he's <laughs> going to know that. We've held him back. <laughs> so everything's created by the mind, and this is in fact the shortcut to learning. Everybody wants a shortcut, right? So the the shortcut is everything's created by the mind. So emptiness is there, but that's the nature of mind. And so, so when we see this, this ultimate truth is whatever you look at, and I was given this at a more advanced retreat oh, uh, just two weeks ago, and it was difficult because the person, there was one person, they're a very good practitioner, very sincere practitioner, that got stuck on this and saying that that the everything is a substance of mind or made of the fabric of mind. And they had a difficult time processing that and saying, if it's a substance of mind, that means that there's something there that's phenomenal and say, no, it, it's all mind. It's all inclusive. There's nothing phenomenal to it. It is just everything appearing is this idea of emptiness, but the emptiness is it in that way, simply mind. Every because it's made of mind, then it is. So I'll give you a partial credit for this one. All right, it's made of mind, but it's seen as empty simply because it is. There's nothing other than mind. There's nothing outside of that. You can't go out of bounds, even though you think you can try to go out of bounds. You know. Who knows, maybe you might think that you, you want to save this body. So you, you become a Taoist, to become immortal or whatever. But you think you might have gone out of bounds of everything, but you didn't. You're, you're still in bounds. Okay. Can I ask a question? Yeah, sure. Instead of uh, talking about emptiness, uh, could one also talk about uh, using a word which normally you don't use, namely a process, mm -hmm. which is empty or because it's a process or it's constantly changing? Would this be helpful or would it be wrong? Or... Are you talking about impermanence? Uh, yes, but also uh, information uh, processing process. Something process. Processing. Who's processing? Mind is processing itself. It it can uh, as long as we discern that mind processes information differently than than a sentient being, which creates a subject-object duality and tries to, to hold on to these things and does it. Mind, just simply in the way that you're doing it, 
is the ruse, the, the the knowing aspect of mind. It isn't necessarily processing as we see processing in the sentient world, where you know x is equal to y, y is equal to o, so o and, and x are equal. It doesn't do it that way. It just knows. So it processes it. It doesn't process it in the form of doing it. It is it is the knowing mind that's there. It knows already. And it doesn't have to process anything. I don't want to get too confused with that because it's it's a different way in which mind works because it's instantaneous. You know, it's an instantaneous download of everything that that exists. We're assuming mind, a perfect mind, it would act in this way. A perfect Buddha would 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 know that that, that is the knowing aspect of mind that doesn't have to to put all these things together. As it's getting there, there's times when, again, it processes the information and delivers certain options. And, and that's when one's mind is beginning to illuminate. And then after, the, there's, the, it doesn't appear as options that can happen. It just simply picks, picks automatically. The default setting is the Buddha setting. So yeah, I mean, it's good that you mention it because it's good to try to see how how mind works, how processes, but it processes instantaneously. Therefore, the Vilamakriti Sutra says, dharmas, and it's referring to phenomena, have no self-nature and no other nature. And this is important here because it says it has no other nature. Other nature would be something that we would think, well, if it's not mine, it's got to be something. It, it's it's unmine. There is no unmine. There isn't anything outside of mine. Mine is essentially the fountainhead of everything, or, or the Tathagata Garba, the womb where everything uh, comes into being. Dharmas were fundamentally not generated in the first place and are not extinguished so here what what he's saying is is that that all the phenomena you see is illusory it doesn't have um something that we can say is is um is permanent it by its nature there, it doesn't have a self. It doesn't have any kind of a lasting foundation to it. The paper I'm holding at one point in time, maybe quite a while, if it's recycled paper, used to be a tree. And before that, it was nutrients that were feeding the tree. But at any given point, we cannot call it anything other than an appearance in mind. It's made up of the fabric of mind. It itself does not have sentience, but the sentience, the real sentience, but but the sentience that we have is mind itself. It also is that which creates the consciousness and creates the idea of a sentient being and gets trapped in that, um, which is what the what how um samsaric world appears is that 
there's a trapping or a confusion within mind as to these things, and it, then they're taken to be real. But mind itself, and you have to look at it. And so when, when we start to talk about the uh, soterological aspect of, of anything, and that's a fancy word to say how something was created, we have to look at how things are created they we it's not so easy to do that um and the default is that there is a supreme being that creates everything but then we get into the big problem of what who created the supreme being and you go well well that that didn't quite work did it and and so Buddhism does not look at that in terms of saying where um, where all of this came from. This is something the quantum uh, physicists and astrophysicists have been battling for quite a while as to how did this all come come in, you know. And there's all sorts of different models of how this world here was created from. Obviously, the, the one that, that's popular right now is Big Bang. Um, and But there's also things that they're saying that there's universes, and then there's a whole role of universes out there. Um, and so which universe are we, we talking about? Or how many times has the universe exploded, imploded, exploded? How many times is that? No, we don't know. We can't know that. You know, we're sentient beings. Maybe the Buddha knows that, but we do not know that. But the Buddha never answered that question. So it's kind of interesting in terms of it, but in terms of, of how things come into being out of the Buddha mind, the answer was the 12 Nadanas or the laws of dependent origination um, and how things come from out of out of uh, grasping and desires and going through the whole gamut um, of creation. Um, all of those things then are illusory. And we, we say that they, there's a birth and a death to them, but in fact, they aren't because those things are just appearances in mind. So whatever we see, we can't really concretely say this is real. Um, if it's moving and and it's phenomenal, it's only a real dream. But we can't say anything more about the reality of it other than that it is apparently real. Is it real? Well, it's apparently real. I mean, it's showing up here, but it you know if we come back later on, it's not going to be here. So we can't hang our hat on that and say that this is this is real. And and the absolute reality is way beyond our pay grade as sentient beings. We 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 cannot address that as to this absolute reality. It, it's inconceivable. And truly, I mean, if you try to think about it, because it's like saying, define infinity. How can you define infinity? But the the Buddha mind is like an infinite light. 
how can you define that? It, it's inconceivable. You can't get to it because you there's no way a sentient mind can wrap itself around mind. It, it's not possible. So I'm kicking you out into the real deep end of all of this. You know, because rather than just say, oh, just follow the Buddha, the Buddha is going to take care of you. It's going to make sure you're fed. You know, it's going to make you tuck you in at night and whatever. No, let's get to it. Let's look at it. Let's let's see what's there. Let's use whatever um, mind power you have to be able to practice and and try to to look at this. Why would I create like like a a false sense of security here. I'd, I'd rather say to you, you know, there's keys here, but you, you have to find the right key to, to, to get out, but you can't take your body with you. And you go, well, then, you know, forget that. I got to take, take Bowser with me. You know, I've been, been with me his whole life. Okay, so we continue. Dharmas were fundamentally not generated in the first place and are not now extinguished. Enlightenment is to transcend the two extremes and enter into a non-discriminating wisdom. So the two extremes would be that there's, there's nothing and then there's everything. And, and so when we when we get into this non-discriminating wisdom, it means that it kind of like we don't have um, a dog in the fight. We don't we don't have something there. We're not trying to to defend the self. We're just looking at it um, with non-discriminating wisdom. We're we're an unbiased judge of everything. And looking at it in this way, instead of trying to make a case for for humankind. If you can understand this doctrine, then all your activities should simply maintain awareness of your fundamental pure mind. Now they add, in addition to fundamental, pure mind. So he keeps modifying this but saying maintain this awareness of this fundamental pure mind the fundamental is looking at it and, and saying i have faith in mine that that it's not logical that something created it because if something created it some supreme being then where did the supreme being go so we have to go to that next level of looking at it and and the fundamental is that if that there cannot be something outside of mind that that wouldn't make sense that would be out of bounds that that would be another mind that's there but but then we cannot call mind mind the problem we have with understanding this is is that the the indians when they when they worked on this, I don't know if you can call Indians Indians, Native Indians, same thing, right? Native <laughs> from India. 
um, well, because they call Native Americans. Mm -hmm. They don't call them Indians, but these are the real Native Indians. Um, they, um, no, in terms of looking at this, it it's something that we, I kind of lost my train of thought in that whole thing. Hold on a second. Um, No, it went, went by the wayside. Okay. Do this constantly and fixedly without generating a false thought of illusion of personal possession. Again, this is something in terms of us and what when we're looking at this, I I just remembered what I was going to say. And that's that they didn't refer to mind as mind. That's why they refer to it as the tathagata, the suchness of things or thusness of things. Because when we start looking at it and referring to it in this way, then it becomes confused with consciousness itself and saying, well, there's this consciousness and we presuppose mind or the Buddha mind has a consciousness similar to our consciousness, which is not the case. Our consciousness works feeding through the, the senses um, and then processing it. And that processing happens at what's called the Manovijnana consciousness, which is just puts together everything that, that the senses are feeding it. And then the Manos consciousness, the seven consciousness, is a consciousness that that interacts with the eighth consciousness, which you could say is kind of like the Tathagata Garbha, the, the Buddha womb, which interacts with it. And, and because of causing conditions, uh, certain actions happen, certain things are created. But that's not really the way the mind works. That's the mind that is a deluded mind that's kind of churning out this, this dream. The dream is temporary. It, it doesn't embody mind, but made from the substance of mind, but it's fueled by, let's say, somebody that eats an anchovy pizza at 11 p.m. at night and, and distorting everything. But we look at this world and we think it's not distorted. We think it's real. We, we think that everything around us is, is real. But it's not in this way. The Buddha mind is not the mind of your consciousness. It has an awareness. And when we learn how to use the awareness properly, the mind is liberated. It then awakens to realize that it is in a dream and because it's now the buddha mind it knows exactly why it's in the dream that's there so this is something and the, um, the theravadins use the term nirvana meaning to blow out the light and but the only thing is in their processing of, of the practice blowing out the light meant blowing out the individual idea of one sentient being believing that they're real or personality or ego, Mahayanas look at it and say, you know, I don't want to leave all of these 
trap Buddhas behind. Why should I do that? It, I don't want them to suffer. I'm free of suffering, but I want I want to awaken them. This is not easy for us to understand. That that we each of us are have a Buddha mind, but we're trapped inside this body, and we we care so much about this body. No, you don't believe me. Stop breathing right now. See if you can do that. Please don't try. <laughs> you you go no. That would be the end of me. Okay, so we continue on. I told you this is like he said. This is the part that's the tricky part, inconceivable part. Um. And he said, if you do this and you put away the idea of personal possession, and the most imper important personal possession is um, the idea of an ego or personality or a life and being. If you ask a lot of questions, the number of doctrinal questions will become greater and greater. So the more you, you ask questions, the more you'll do it. And lo and behold, you become a Buddhist scholar. And um, if you want to understand the essential point of Buddhism, then what, what, as he's been saying all along, be aware that maintaining awareness of the mind is paramount. Maintaining um, awareness of the mind is the fundamental basis of nirvana. The essential gateway of entering the path, the basic principle of the entire Buddhist canon, and the patriarch of all the Buddhas of the past, present, and future. That's a mouthful that he said right there. Um, and this is this ends part one. Part two is explaining everything that he just said. Um, in terms of this and this idea. So uh, Holmgren kept to, to the key, which is maintaining the awareness of mind. When we meditate, that's precisely what we do, is maintain the awareness of mind. We don't veer off and run off to act on this imaginings or this imaginings or confusions or whatever. We just keep the mind in one place. We do that by relaxation. We do this by a discernment that we know how mind works and a confidence and a faith that we have that if we do this, then the mind will reveal. It doesn't, it doesn't reveal itself to you. You won't be there when it's revealed. The very fact that it's revealing is because the idea of an individual self or a life and being has diminished to the point that the mind can come out. And, and when it comes out, it may reveal itself in, you know, a burst of glory, which is highly unlikely. Um, or it can be something where it just does a little reveal. It just reveals a, like a new car it just reveals the bumper or the wheels, or something. It doesn't, you know, rarely pull the whole cover off. 
but it pulls enough off for you to realize that that's the real thing. And that 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 guides you to practice harder and harder. So little by little, the mind will be fully revealed. Is the mind fully revealed to me? No, I, I think I've got a peak of the license plate. But it's something, right? Not bad. Okay, I'll stop there for, for this one. Are there in, any questions? Yes, go ahead. Uh, you mentioned the topic out of. Um, I always understood it as a synonym for Buddha, but perhaps I misunderstood it. Can you elaborate just a little bit on the definition of Tathagata? It, it, it means, it just simply, sometimes it'll say, um, thus come one or thus gone one. And uh, which means really the same thing, which is just that, that it's the nature of things, but it doesn't want to try to create something that somebody can hold on to. So it just uses this as a reference point. You know, you know who I'm talking about? No, what's his name? Thus. <laughs> no. And and because when we begin to talk about it and call it mind, then there's a great confusion that comes up because they say, are you talking about my mind or his mind? Or who? And you have to say, like, never mind. <laughs> no. Well, that's not good enough. Well, then no mind. Like no mind, like known mind, or like no mind, like I know mine. You see how <laughs> confusing it gets very quickly when we do this. So they just said, all right, stop it, stop it. We'll just call it thus. And that's pretty much how it came about. Maybe a little bit less dramatic than I've said, but probably they were looking at it and going, you know, we can't call it a thing. So the most important part is by not identifying it as a thing. Once we call it a thing, then the um, the theory or doctrine behind mind fails because now we've created a thing that um, that creates a duality. But in fact, there's no duality there. So the phenomena is embraced in the absolute. That was the, the Madhyamaka school looking at things with Nagarjuna saying there's this apparent reality and an absolute reality. So they say, which one is real? But he doesn't say. Because the minute he opens his mouth, he messes everything up. They are the reality of things. But we cannot say is it real once we say, oh, this one's real, that one's not real. We know that one is encased in the other one, which is the apparent reality. But we cannot separate that from mind. If we separate it, then that's out of bounds. It's not mind. So our whole premise of, of examining things fails. It cannot be that way. So the apparent reality is that it's there. Okay, what is it made out of? All the phenomena is made out of the substance of mind. It has to be that way. It can't be any other way. So there's a reality to that. 
but in and of itself, it has no independent reality. Only independent reality it has is emptiness. And as it falls back into mind, the numinous aspect of mind. You got that, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm going, this is the end of the night, so I'm going a little bit deeper, you know, like who let the dogs out. And I'm like coming up with with like the whole enchilada for you. Okay, any other questions? They can be simple questions like how do I meditate? Everybody can meditate or are, do you have any questions about your meditation? Yes. Uh, I, I think my question has to do with um, uh, what do you do if you don't have a advisor that uh, periodically gives you instructions? You find one. Um, one of my chopped liver. <laughs> Was that an invitation or not? <laughs> you you always are looking for for someone to try to it's a well-known advisor and um and as you practice harder well-known advisors are fewer um to find but you you never stop looking for them so you you try to do it. You cannot do this on your own. You know, you can reach what's called pratika uh, Buddha um, status, but it's very difficult for you to to do navigate through this by yourself. Of course, you have the dharmas to 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 study, but a well-known advisor kind of keeps you um, honest about things, keeps you sincere. So where, you know, sometimes I see people that have no well-known advisor that should have hit them on the back of the head and said, stop that, you know? But they walking around thinking that they are a lot more um, um, realized than they really are. So that's that's what a, um, a well-known advisor does, a master or, or whoever, I mean, um, that you get that can t tell you, you know, help you. They aren't necessarily like a Boy Scout helping you walk across the street. They can tell you, hey, you know, if you go that way, that's probably your best choice. But then they're, they'll be like the scarecrow in the wizard. Of course, that way's a pretty good way, too. <laughs> <laughs> you want to go that way. But at least they give you options. You've never seen the wizard of Oz. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, uh, I'm just amusing myself. Um, but in any case, that's what you do. You you find one, okay? So I can be your huckleberry. <laughs> Another arcane reference. Oh, go ahead. Uh, simple question. Most people in this room probably know the answer, but I don't. So you're describing the differences uh, between. Theravada and Mahayama tradition, mainly with uh, Mahayama, the what's like the Buddha, Buddha mind wants to come back to save others or to release them, I guess, uh, to help them become Buddhas. Is that as 
the main or only difference between the two schools, or is there something else that is separates them? The, it's distinguished by the idea of the way that the Theravadans, Theravadan means study of the elders, okay, and then mop. So, um, you ever play the game where you, you grab a bat and you go like this and you go like that, right? And so then they, and they get to the end and they go, this is the Abhidharma, you know, this is, this is, Abhi means highest. And so it's the highest Dharma. So they say, we have the Abhidharma. And it was uh, uh, propounded by Sariputra. And so they have, Mahayana comes and goes, I put a cap on that and say, Mahayana means the highest vehicle. And the, so they distinguish it by the idea that that there is this compassion that is there from the wisdom that um, that generates this idea of, of bodhisattvas. So there was a, a transition point where bodhisattvas all of a sudden began to appear. They they did not appear in the Theravadan. Um, uh, 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 script or scriptures except for a couple of times when they're referencing um shakamuni buddha but in the in the mahayana then it becomes an ideal so we have arhants which are these enlightened beings but above that now they put the cap on it which is a bodhisattvas i remember going to my first uh, retreat and and master shenyang you know, during the middle of the retreat, says, "Oh, you can become an arhat," and I went, like, "Wow, that's pretty good, arhat, lohan. That's pretty good, right?" You know, I always see them in the gardens at the the Buddhist temples. There's a lohan there, and I went, "Wait, is he insulting me?" <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized that you know, in the whole cosmology of things, you know, the bodhisattva, he was kept telling me, you know. This is not for you. This this is you have to come back. You have to you have to to explain things to people. And so it, it is in this way where there's a distinction of that, a more of an emphasis. And so when you're asking what's the difference, is is that the Theravadans saw things not quite as black and white as being real, but they saw things as being real in a way that they belong to mind. So everything that appears is real, kind of like trying to answer the two truths where Nagarjuna said, no, you know, I can't answer that because the moment I say that, it, it is fallacious argument, which it was. And once they did that, the Nagarjuna from the Madhyamaka school came in and ripped them to shreds and, and showed how how things cannot be real in the way that they're saying. Um, that was something that he used, what's called reducing ad absurdum, taking a person's argument out to its most illogical extremes. So they take them out to the thinnest branch possible and go, look where you're at now, crack. And, and they, it breaks off. So the only way to win that argument is not to play it. So because it's not answerable anyway. So, so that's the part. But the emphasis then was on compassion, not just 
worldly compassion, but unbridled compassion of this interest in awakening Buddhas that are operating in a dream state, believing that they're sentient beings. Although we, we say we deliver sentient beings, we understand the delivering of sentient beings, those sentient beings are illusory. They're, they're not really real. They're real in the dream, but they're not ultimately real. They're created by mind. And that this is going back to the emptiness. This is the emptiness of things that we see, but it's not the emptiness like an empty, empty can as much as it, it's, it is like a can that's ever expanding in all directions, inclusive of everything. So they should have come up with a, a better term, at least in English. I don't know in Chinese, the term empty kong, does it also mean like empty, like things are empty? It does. So they messed it up there too. So, and I don't know in Sunyata, whether in the Sanskrit, you know, how it does it, because it, the term as you begin to practice is a misnomer. It, it's not the right way of, of calling things because there's too much confusion about saying things. The only thing good about the emptiness is meaning that it's it's non-existent, but it, we don't refute or say it's non-existent or existent. So we don't really use it in that way. So it changes the meaning of emptiness. That's something that you should try to uh, contemplate um, the term emptiness, because it, it's a pretty good starting point to figure out where where you're at but that's the differences between Theravada and and uh the Mahayana was that uh everything was seen as empty in Mahayana and again it's just like the term real in the Theravada they're not quite as black and white as they appear to be in 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 words there, there's much more uh, deeperness, deepness to them than, than what appears. Okay. And um, any other questions? Yes. Yeah, I have a question about uh, a chapter in Shurangama Sutra. The Shurangama Sutra have a chapter on the origin of the illusory, illusory world, which says that the original enlightenment is by itself right. However, if we add understanding to the enlightenment, then there have to be something that needs to be understood. And uh, eventually, that, that chapter keeps saying that eventually does come the illusory world. Uh, I have a question on what does it really mean by adding, adding understanding to the to the original enlightenment? And in particular, if we use the, the two half sphere picture, does the splitting of the noumenon and, uh, and the phenomena, the splitting of the observer and the observer, this splitting itself, is this the first falsehoodness that eventually creates this whole chain of illusions? Wow, such a deep <laughs> question. I've got to think about this one. Do you understand your navel? Your belly button? Do you know your belly button? Of course you have, you've seen it, right? You've seen it. Does anybody have to tell you, I want you to understand your belly button? Why would why would you want to understand your belly button? You know exactly where it's at. It's south of your nose, 
right? It's perfectly in its place. It You've never lost it. You might have packed some lint in there occasionally. But you know exactly where it's at. What part of understanding do you need to know about your belly button? Nothing. The Buddha mind is the same way. The Dharmakaya, how can the, the mind not know what it is? Or I shouldn't say it. Mind is. It, it's all-knowing. It doesn't have to understand anything. When we add that understanding, we create a duality. Go back and read the Shirangama Sutra again with that kind of an understanding. And it literally just bloomed right in front of you. Okay. It is it is the duality that is creating the problem. And 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 that part of the Shirangama Sutra is, is very good to try to point that out. So you read it on the basic cable. Now you've got some, you know, a running start on it. Now read it with the profound wisdom channel. Okay. Get off the discovery channel. Okay. <laughs> Go to something deeper. But no, your question's a very good one. I, I'm making fun of it because it's not because the question isn't a good question. It's a really, really good question. But for him, he has to see it as simple as, as the answer is instead of trying to extrapolate something intellectual about it. You just see it as it is, the thusness of it, and then it works. Okay. Yes? Uh, I have a question about um, uh, kind of how the illusion of self forms. Um, say it again? How the illusion of self forms from the mind, like starting off from birth, you could say, like, how does the mind create that illusion of self? Like establish that that uh, that cage. How does that how does that come into being? Because I don't know. From my view, it's like you know um, the self would form like that illusion forms like not after birth. It takes you know your childhood to like almost form that. It, it's kind of interesting because there's no true answer as to when that started yeah. and how it started. You know, we kind of uh, are missing that chapter. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you the truth in terms of it. We don't know when that started or what was that first spark that started that. It's just kind of like the origin of the universe. We know that once that spark was there, then it followed through all the way through creation and death. And, and we see the things in, in this way. Um, but we don't know what got that part going. I'm not going to sit here and, and you know, um, wash your brain about them thinking in Spanish right now. Um, but uh, wash your, your brain and, and, and tell you, oh, you know, I know that. I, I, I don't know that. I don't think that the Buddha ever addressed when that happened, you know, um, like... Uh, how long ago how, what year would that be i mean that would be kind of irrelevant right because there wouldn't have been a year then so it, we don't know we don't know that and so uh it's interesting you know um but it's a matter of kind of contemplating all of that um and and to see you no know, 
if um, I mean, even if you went and you tried to ask uh, a deity that so-called created that, then you'd have to go and then ask them just while I'm at it, just for the kicks, you know, when did you get created and how did you get created? (laughs) So it's kind of an interesting thing in terms of looking at it, but your questions are legitimate. Yeah. You know, they're legitimate and, and, and you have to look at that and, and kind of say, do I have a better way to approach it? No, uh, but many philosophers have not been able to go past that, and nobody wants to touch that. You know, it's kind of interesting, but it's a good question. But like I said, it's a legitimate question. Any, anything else? Yep, way in the back. Yeah, uh, before you were saying something about the you know the twelve links is potentially explaining it from a personal perspective, right? Not necessarily a cosmology, but from a personal perspective, the self arises because of sensation and eventually leading to grasping and yes so it's kind of an interesting thing when we talk about the 12 madonnas because as we look at them it is actually reverse engineering them gets us back to mind so instead of looking at them as a culmination of something kind of following that trail back leads us right back to the to the origin to the source and and so when when we meditate we're we're approaching it from the source the source looking at at the source and and that's what quiets the mind because all the other discussions are irrelevant anything that's appearing is irrelevant any aha moments are gone it, it, we just simply come back to the source and and that's the way that we meditate or the way we look at this world we see it in this way from the source not from from um, uh, the the actions that are happening but we understand that we're navigating in this dream world and we have to abide by some of the rules of the dream world. We cannot overextend our stay, even though we may have the ability to do that. At some point, we have to leave. But then we're not, in fact, leaving because we can set our, our sights on coming back in if, you, if we want to, to work again. So it's a different way of looking at things. And, and when our mind is settled. When we navigate in this world, we make less mistakes. So it's not bad. Even if I was totally wrong about everything else. No. I, I've said this before is that let's say I was wrong and all of a sudden I'm I'm in front of God. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, all those things I said about you, you know. Yeah, it was just like in the joke, right? <laughs> Don't take it personal. But I haven't really said anything that harms this world, harms people. And so my whole thing was, is if I was wrong about this and there was just really a God up there and he threw me into hell because I was telling people to be compassionate with each other and harmonize, then 
what the hell? I, I don't want to be in this world anyway. What kind of a God is that? So when we look at, at Buddha nature, it is filled with love. It's filled with this unconditional love. It's why I'm here. It is in this way. I could be watching my my college football team playing tonight in the Rose Bowl or wherever they're playing. But yeah, and they're in the Rose Bowl. And my sister offered me a ticket. But I'm here instead. Out of love. It's just this way we do things. After all of this and all this heady and scholarly type of things and Nagarjunas and Madhyamakas and you name it, it really kind of boils down to that we care about each other. We should care about each other. And in whatever ways we can help each other, we should do that. If if I'm wrong about that, excuse me, but I'll keep being wrong about that. So it's not bad. It doesn't matter. You know, whether you're um, a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, a, a Buddhist, or whatever. There's not any discrimination about that. Maybe in college football, but not here. <laughs> yes. Nature versus liberation versus enlightenment. I mean, there have been times um, when... I've even heard you say enlightenment where I was thinking, oh, doesn't seem any liberation there. So and, and it happens a lot in the in the um uh world. They they're always saying enlightenment when I think they're meaning liberation. Um could could you clarify those three? Are you talking about did you say Tibetan? Yeah. Well, I'll leave Tibetans to the Tibetans, but their idea of of enlightenment is different than ours in some some respects. Um, they they use the word enlightenment to to say when somebody has a complete enlightenment, and um, and that there were I don't even use that word. I don't use the word enlightenment um, because who is to become enlightened? not a sentient being, but I, I refer to awakening because in awakening, it is a, a matter of, of, you could say, progression where the, the mind will peel off a little bit of itself to show you something that you can handle in that moment. And then, and and so you've awakened to something. You may be awakened to say, hey, this is a dream. And but that's not complete enlightenment. That's not complete where where one sees the world like, let's say, an established Buddha. Although we possess the Buddha mind, we have not sufficiently awakened, separated ourselves from, from this world. It is Although people are capable of obtaining complete enlightenment as a sentient being, that could happen. But that doesn't happen too, too often, but people can awaken to this world and awaken to what mind is. 
and then set into motion that which needs to be done. I mean, it was like, um, I think it was Deepankara, uh, a Buddha that told Shakyamuni, oh, you know, something like, in a few more kalpas, you'll become a Buddha. It's like, wow, I was just expecting it was going to be next, you know, January. <laughs> but but again, the kalpas can go by like that. So the thing is, is that it's different because, you know, I don't even know if Buddhists really have kalpas. You know, because where is that measurement going to be based on? It wouldn't be based on on um, some dark world because it's illusory. But if we try to base things on that, they're just trying to tell you it's uncountable. So the thing is, is that this enlightenment is one that I could not tell you what that full enlightenment would be. I, you know, just the things that I've seen are pretty incredible, but I know I'm just taking baby steps uh, in terms of that. But there's things that happen to you that are really interesting, you know, that that happen. No, there's times when at night I'm being taught classes, like going to a class. And I, I close my eyes and I'm back in class again, not like back in class, like sitting at a at a chair, but it's just more is revealed, not to me, but mine reveals itself. And it just does that. Or there's things that happen some things that that in the middle of the night that I that that come as epiphanies. It's very strange. It doesn't matter whether you're sleeping or you're you're awake. You know, awake, some dark awake. You things come to you, and it, the, that's the only way I can explain it is that that there's revealing of mind. Um, that's why I kind of mentioned, remember the like cutting a um, a slice out of the sky. That to us is inconceivable, but in mind it is. You can see it, experience it. So it's different. It it operates on totally inconceivable um, manner than what is samsara. But but it's there. Probably one of the, the greatest experiences I got was one of my first ones on my first retreat where I was in extreme pain. Like so much pain that I held an auction in my head that if I could pay $20,000 and nobody knew that I ever came to this retreat, I would do it. If I could just get out of there right then. And at that point, I was crying, where the heck am I going to get to 20000 You made the deal. <laughs> and at the break, I went before the uh, Kuan Yin statue. And I was there and I was going, look, I'm in real trouble. I'm in extreme pain, so much pain. I don't know if I can make it. It was a tough retreat. They were really tough on us. And that retreat, actually, one of the novice monks, he literally jumped the fence and escaped. And, and then what they did was very clever. They just 
closed up the cushions so that so wasn't there so no no <laughs> no and I'm going wow this is like this is really bad you know I'm, and and so so I went to Kwan Yin and I said look I can't go back like this I mean like I'm a total failure it's like beating the army and they're pulling off your you know all your patches and everything <laughs> and and finally um I just kept doing prostrations and prostrations and finally I got up and I realized it had already started the the next session so then when I'm giving you a very shortened version of this but when I sat all my pain was gone every single bit of pain was gone and when when um they rang the bell I just popped up like a like a young kid it, it wasn't even that the pain was gone but my legs felt like they were like 30 years younger and I'm going like how can this happen how could that be that I had pain and then all the pain went away in 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 a snap of fingers it just you know but here's the kicker to this because I had students at that time and I said I cannot go back a failure because I'm going to let all these people down. So they come back. How is your retreat? <laughs> I met the novice monk at the Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> what? No. So my thing is, I'm carrying my side of the bargain. I'm here because I said I cannot let my students down. That's what I'm here because I'm just paying it forward. And and it was something that 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 to me was a revelation because I'm looking at it going, then this world is not as real as we believe it to be. The suffering in this world is not there like that. It can go away in a snap of the fingers. How is that possible? How's it possible? And then I had great faith, very strong faith. And and but the guidance of that moment was to deliver others, to share this with others so that people can see that this world, it's a burning building, it's filled with suffering, but there's a ways out of it. So that's, that's to me, enough awakening for me. And since then, I've had many different revelations and, and things, but but that was the key one. I mean, in terms of for what I'm doing here, everything else is just a reconfirmation of what I've been reading in the sutras. So anyway, that's it. Any other questions? Yes. I know you guys keep asking questions about the set. Ask a very practical one. <laughs> okay. How, how do you deal with, uh, from the Buddhist perspective, how do you deal with like anger and uh, impatience in day-to-day life? And sometimes those kind of anger like uh, arise out of nothing, or maybe because of some tiny tiny things, they cannot control this kind of anger. That's how we deal with that. We have a saying in Spanish, "Gente manda," means who is giving you orders? Who who's telling you to be angry or impatient? Who is it? How do you get that way? If this is can you show me like you're angry right now? 
you can. Because originally it doesn't belong to you. It's just causes and conditions. It's an acquired taste that you picked up going through through um, uh, some sorrow. But it's not really real. To you, in that moment, you think, I am angry. But as you've been here all this time, I haven't seen you angry or impatient once. So it cannot be your true nature. It is just something that appears and it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction to whatever is there. So you don't have to do that. You can choose not to. The thing that helped me a lot is, is something really stupid, but it works. I shouldn't say it's stupid, but but it's like when somebody will say, you know, I just want you to know that I forgot to file this these legal documents. And I'm, <laughs> And I'm going, all right, I walk away. One, two, three, four, count to ten. Now I'm going to find two percent. I'll let me kill this person. And I go, okay, this is what we're going to do. You know, and, and I let it go. It doesn't belong to me, but the causes and conditions will present things to you. You know, and um, and so you let it go. You choose not to be impatient, and you choose to do it. To me, I have um, a, a line karma, bad line karma. Any line that I'm in, even if it's the shortest one, will be the longest one. So I go to the supermarket and I go to do it. Oh, we have to do it a cash register change or like the, the checker change. They're counting the dollars and stuff like that. Or or the, the, the tape change, you know, or whatever it is, or somebody breaks a bottle. So I practice in that moment. I know this. I even tell the people behind me, don't even stand behind me. <laughs> if you stand behind me, I must have been some kind of a person that was at a gate somewhere that just kept put people waiting forever. So my karma is in this lifetime that I have to be kept waiting in line, wherever it is. If I go to the, the bank, it's a little old lady counting down pennies. What? Cheers? <laughs> you know, do I have the choice of either like choking her, going to prison for the rest of my life, or just enduring it and, and having patience? But the patience is a virtue. And you see things in this way. So when you feel like you're going to lose your patience, just, just start reciting the, the Buddha's name or Guan Chi Pusa. You cannot have both in your mind at the same time. It works. Okay. So you try it. Okay. And um, and, and I guarantee you it, it will work because what you're doing is you're reversing the course of the habitual pattern so that when you start feeling angry that's the time to practice and so that's what will arise in your mind is to practice you know and and as an attorney there's always um opportunities you can say of where you can lose your patience or that you can be angry but it doesn't do any good 
it makes it it makes everything worse. So my staff is there after hearing something like that, and they're waiting. What's going to happen? You know, and I come back and I just start talking in a normal voice, and they're going like, "What's wrong with this picture?" <laughs> He should be yelling or being angry or throwing things, but but it isn't in that way. You can change. You choose moment to moment. Okay, it's a good question. Yes. Get this speak to the left side. Oh yeah. So I just want to ask how uh, you explain karma with sentient beings and how do you do it? How do you explain karma? What? I karma. Oh, harmonizing with sentient beings. To me, at this point, it's very easy for me to do it. Not always. I mean, there's some sentient beings that are doozies out there. I mean, but but you you see everybody as a Buddha, and you see every as their Buddhas. Why would you want to harm a Buddha? So instead, you want to to give them the biggest portion, let them go by first, tell them that they're right. You don't want to create friction at all in your life. You don't do this in a stupid way, you know, where the person comes and says, you know, um, you see me as a Buddha, give me all your money. You know, you have wisdom there. So that wisdom helps you, but you have this compassion and you use a, a, a delicate balance of wisdom and compassion with everybody that you meet. Some people, they can't help themselves. Their personality is one that can turn you off right away. But they deserve a chance too. If they have a flaw, it's from causes and conditions. And so you, you see that and you'd want people to give you a chance. So it it it's in this way we try our best to help people but if somebody wants to take advantage of you you don't let them take advantage of you uh, because then you're you're creating worse karma for them because then they have to pay that back later on so you you temper your compassion with wisdom and then you can't go wrong no it's better for you to err on the side um, of of compassion than to try to um, uh, no, be so hard. You're a soft person as it is, so it should be easy for you to do. Just don't pick and choose so much. I like this Buddha, but this Buddha, no. <laughs> All right, I like this Buddha and this Buddha, no. So that way it's even now, okay? <laughs> I have to be mindful about that because you say, what are you calling me? <laughs> okay, any any other questions? No? All right, well, you have some chance. Um, if you need to use the restroom, you have to go use it and then return to sit. Otherwise, just sit for the rest of the period, okay? okay we'll get up first. Yeah.
Well, have one more seated meditation.